Well, today we're talking about inflation and we're talking about it again because it was an important episode in our first season. And we make no apologies for doing it again this season because it's just a topic that has become dominant. When we've interviewed NEDs of insurers and when we've interviewed chief actuaries and CROs, they all agree that inflation is currently the number one concern, the number one risk out there to be managed. And that's quite significant when you consider what the sort of number twos and threes on the list are with things like global conflicts and COVID ongoing fallout. So I think it's great that we are covering it again. We've got just the right person to talk through these issues with. Ed Harrison has spent more time Time than most actuaries in thinking about, A, the best way to synthesize all the slightly incoherent and incompatible views of inflation that we get from around the market, and also how actuaries can put those into practice using actual methods and assumptions that we're required to do, whether it's reserving or capital or whatever. So really excited to kick this one off today. And welcome back to the podcast, Ed. Yeah, really pleased to have Ed back. I think it's going to be a great episode. And I'm just actually amazed at how much has changed in the last few months. I think we recorded this back in November and just even in that much time, how much has changed. So it isn't a topic that we've got to keep on top of. Welcome to Insurance Uncut, the podcast where we explore the big issues impacting the general insurance market. I'm Charles Cronier. And I'm Jessica Clark. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by LCP. We'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch with your questions or feedback via LinkedIn or our website. Let's kick off with this week's episode. Although, obviously, governments can't directly influence any more kind of interest rates and kind of government policy, we're in a time of, you know, cost of living crisis, inflation is continuing to rise. And it's a real challenge for the government to to manage and handle, you know, the kind of don't want to put up people's wages because that will drive inflation up even more. But people are struggling to, you know, heat the homes and put food on the table. So it is a real tricky balancing act, I'm sure all the people in government departments at the moment are really scratching their heads as to what's best to support people without disrupting the system too much. Mm. And of course, some of these, some of the things that we're seeing now just in the last week, like the, you know, the, the government's proposed support package to help with people's energy costs, I mean, effectively that is feeding more money into the system, which in itself might not be the best thing in terms of curbing inflation, as well as the windfall tax on energy companies, which again puts more money in the public exchequer and depending on how that is spent, could also fuel more inflation. So it's an interesting time for those of us whose job is to model and value insurers' liabilities, including the inflationary impact on, on those. And Ed, it's it's great to have you with us, with you just coming off the back of your talk at LCP's annual reserving seminar a few days ago. And of course, you know, no surprises, inflation was the number one topic. So, I mean, perhaps just starting off, you know, how, how do you see how do you see the situation for actuaries looking to get a handle on inflation, insurers looking to make sensible assumptions now, and how is that all changing? I think I'll start by talking about change. This is my second visit to the podcast. There's been a lot of change in my personal life since I was last on, in that you might hear in the background a six-month-old baby having breakfast. So apologize for any background noise that you might get through the noise cancelling microphone. (laughs) Another thing about change, we were talking back in November, I think it was, about 
whether inflation was going to be a sort of a blip effectively in the background of low economic inflation, whether perhaps it would all have come out in the wash by now. We've obviously moved on a few stages since then, and I think almost turned it up to 11 in terms of concern in the market about inflation. So the latest Bank of England economic forecast, CPI is already at 7.1%, and the expectation now is that it will peak at over 10% and probably not get back to the target of 2% until late in 2024 or 2025. So no longer a blip in the road, but sort of more of a wheel crunching crunch in the road. Could I just jump in there quickly and ask, is it still very much the expectation that the peak is happening this year towards the end of this year? Or actually, is it now looking like a possibility that that could go out on further into 2023 or beyond? So the Bank of England's view is that inflation will peak late in this year and then start falling back towards its target. But of course, that means that we're going to be above target for quite a protracted period, even if signs are we're we're heading back towards where familiar territory. So it isn't just a case of insurers planning for a peak later in this year and then the problem goes away. Uh, If we're at 10% at the end of this year, then obviously it's still going to be a problem in 2023. And it's probably still going to be a problem in 2024. And that is probably the the duration of insurers' current liabilities. So it's going to be a problem for a reserving perspective for a while. And it's going to be a problem for a pricing perspective as well. Mm. And I guess something that I've become more and more aware of is, first of all, the market does not believe the Bank of England's forecast, at least not the slightly longer term component. Because if you look at the market in CPI swaps, they're implying that we won't get down to the 2% Bank of England target anytime soon. And it's also been pointed out to me, and I, and I think this probably makes a lot of sense, that the Bank of England is inherently conflicted when producing inflation forecasts. Because if it puts out a very high forecast, that is going to drive all sorts of behaviors which might make it more likely that that high inflation occurs. So you can kind of understand why they wouldn't want to be doing that. But it does mean that their predictions probably to be treated with a lot more caution than normal in the current environment. So I think you have to be a little bit careful when you look at the implied inflation rate, which you get by looking at the difference between nominal yields and real yields on government bonds. I mean, for a start, it's a very strange shape at the moment. It's kind of got a a very quick drop off from about 5% now, then another hump at about 10 years duration, where the implied inflation is, I think, about 4%. And then, yes, as you say, it doesn't really ever get back down to that 2% target. Now, I guess there's obviously the, the current element of high inflation expectations, but I think that curve also builds in a bit of a risk premium as well. And this is something that we actually saw come through in our own survey results we were presenting at the reserving seminar, in that although the Bank of England target is 2%, we saw respondents to our poll, and there are about 90 of them, suggesting that in the long term, they much more expected CPI to sit at sort of 2.5-3% rather than, well, I think the actual average was 27 rather than down at 2 and when we discussed this with a, a few people in the industry, I think the the sentiment was that there's a lot more upward inflation risk than there is downward. The distribution is skewed. And so if the target is 2%, more often than not, you're going to overshoot than undershoot. And I think an element of that comes across in the, in the risk premium in the yield curve as well. Another thing that 
is concerning me is is just how poor forecasts that were made three months ago, six months ago, etc., on inflation are turning out to be. And to be fair, that's not just the Bank of England, but it's the market expectations as well. So it's clear that the market and the Bank of England keep on underestimating how high the peak will be, how long it'll be until we reach the peak, and perhaps also the sort of how long this inflation spike or inflation problem will last for. I know saying this might just reveal my own personal bias, but to me, it seemed really obvious several months ago that there was strong potential for the inflation spike to be worse, to go on longer, etc. And I don't just say that lightly because the sorts of factors that were driving the inflation were quite deeply seated supply chain problems. And then more recently, the sort of increase in global conflicts, which unsurprisingly are not going to take five minutes to sort out. So it sort of brings to mind this this question of bias. And are we all effectively biased towards wanting to predict that inflation is not going to be so bad? It's going to go away quickly because it just we just feel better thinking that way? Oh, that's a really interesting point. And again, we can come on to this more in a minute, I suppose. Something that we saw again in our own survey results. Just picking up on this point about under forecasting and undershooting, though. Uh, it is easy to kind of fall into the trap of saying that that's happened and looking back with a bit of hindsight bias and saying all the factors were obvious. I think hand on heart, when we recorded this podcast in November, we probably didn't see the Ukrainian conflict coming. That has obviously done a lot to increase inflation beyond what the Bank of England could possibly have seen in November. So I've got a lot of sympathy with them holding their hands up and saying inflation is going to hit 10% and it's really not our fault. And I guess just examples of that are in terms of the impact on food prices. The idea that that Russia is kind of holding the world hostage over Ukrainian grain exports is clearly weighing heavily on food prices and causing inflation there. And of course, by now, we're all familiar with the story about fuel prices and the massive state intervention that we're seeing there that that you mentioned at the start, Charles. I guess just in terms of the point about how this impacts inflation, inflation is just the difference between a price this year and a price last year or the price next year and the price this year. So to some extent, you can have perpetually high energy prices and food prices if the conflict in Ukraine continues indefinitely. Those don't necessarily keep translating into inflationary shocks because arguably once the impact has hit and the conflict has started, then that works its way through the system in a year. So it isn't necessarily true to say inflation will stay high, but prices may well do so. Of course, that does introduce this element of uncertainty where Clearly, if there's escalation in the conflict, escalation in the sanctions regime, then it's natural to think there's that downside risk where inflation may ratchet up again as food prices rise further, as the EU weans itself off Russian gas and oil. And that's the the downside risk. What are other data sources or indicators that you should be looking out for to help you when you're coming up with like, you know, inflation assumptions? With my reserving hat on, I think the first thing to say is that clearly we're in a stage where the answer isn't make no allowance or make no change to reserves. So we have to do something. And that kind of raises the question of, as you say, what should we then look at? Now, I think the Bank of England forecasts are a good starting point. And they kind of give you a sense of what's going on in the background of the economy. 
but of course, CPI is just a, a composite index made up of a, a basket of goods, and those goods aren't necessarily directly applicable to any one individual insurance product. So then you have this idea of excess inflation, which is just a difference between that background economic inflation and what's going on on a specific class. So as, as an actuary, what I tend to do is try and look beyond the economic inflation and try to find an index that most closely matches to the particular class of business that I'm projecting. I think that's a very good point. It just occurred to me that I've seen a very good example of that in motor reserving over recent months, where, you know, in the past, a general reserving approach would have been to apply sort of global claims inflation assumptions across various different heads of damage, whereas now there's a lot more thought being given to the fact that whilst, let's say, for the motor property damage side of things, there's extremely strong inflationary forces because of things like supply of raw materials and parts. In other cases, let's say for small bodily injury claims, there are now fixed tariffs and costs in place, which, yes, they could be revised in a few years' time, but in the short term, they can't really move. And so much as there's general inflation, it's not going to feed through in that place. And then you've got the much more complex question on, say, large bodily injury claims, where things like the cost of providing medical care to catastrophically injured patients, that's very much going to be linked to care worker salaries. And there, there's some really interesting questions as to where those salaries are going next. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And again, if you look at sort of outside the motor space, then on commercial and personal property, perhaps instead of looking at CPI, you can look at the BICS index, which is an index of sort of the cost of rebuild and construction prices in the UK market. And I think testing my memory a bit, that's already at about 10%. So it's running a little bit ahead of the CPI index. That's true. And we had those spikes in certain building supplies as early as sort of a year or slightly more ago? So I think overall, the point is perhaps as as actuaries, particularly in the reserving space, we haven't really had to think about inflation as much as we should have done over the past few years. It's been benign. It hasn't been the biggest driver of results compared to other sources of uncertainty pretty much across the board. Perhaps motor is one exception to that. Now we're kind of having to dust off the inflationary toolkit and start thinking again about what are the big drivers of inflation on particular classes of business? Where can we get data about what those drivers have been in the past so that we kind of know what, what's implicitly built into our reserving? And how can we kind of get an estimate or a handle on what those drivers are going to be over the few years that it takes to settle those claims so that we can build in an extra allowance going forward? And that kind of inflation gap between what's embedded in the data that we're using, a bit of an unknown unknown sometimes, and what we expect in the future, that really is the crux of the problem. But it's, it's two things that are very difficult to measure. And you talk about using past data. And of course, the last 15 years or so have been extremely unusual in terms of the you know, post-financial crisis. Central banks can no longer influence inflation in the way that they used to be able to. So instead of the, you know, kind of the old playbook whereby if inflation runs, starts running a bit hot, you increase interest rates, which slows down economic activity. These days, central banks dare not do that. And actually, central banks are printing so much money that it's just, you know, it's just they're moving completely in the opposite direction. So that's another thing that makes me very skeptical about some of the inflation forecasts we're seeing is that especially where they're being expected to tend towards some sort of central bank target. 
quite what levers those central banks are going to pull to achieve that, I do question. I'm not sure I totally agree. I think for me, where central banks ran into trouble over the past few years was controlling inflation that was below the Bank of England target of 2%. And there we ran for 10 years with interest rates effectively naught or close to naught. And typically what the Bank of England would like to do if inflation falls below its sweet spot is lower interest rates, accelerate the economy and try and bring that target back up. The quantitative easing or QE that you referred to, Charles, is kind of like the, the turbo on that. If you've already lowered the gear by dropping interest rates to rock bottom, then that's kind of the next step beyond that. I don't think the Bank of England is quite so constrained in its ability to control upward inflation because clearly it has the ability to raise interest rates to resolve that. I think the challenge and the reticence there is that we we have all become used to a period of low interest rates. And those of us who are sort of my age were fortunate enough to have bought their own homes are acutely aware that as the interest rate goes up, so mortgage rates go up. So Clearly, the moment the Bank of England starts raising interest rates in a substantial way, and they have been higher than 5% in the past, that will put a big break on the economy, that will rein in spending, and that will ultimately probably rein in inflation as well. The real challenge is trying to find that golden thread or that golden path where you achieve that break on inflation in a measured and controlled way, but don't crash the economy in the process. And historically, I think central banks have slammed on the brake a bit too hard and given everyone a bit of whiplash in the process. And they're very conscious of trying to avoid doing that this time round. Do you think that's why we've only seen increases of, you know, up to 1% and they've, you know, given the high levels of inflation expected, you might have expected interest rates to have increased a lot more? Well, I'd be quite keen to jump in on that one. I think it's exactly true what you say, Ed, that if central banks were to raise interest rates, it would put a break on the economy. I just don't think central banks will do it because politically, I don't think that the UK government and many other Western governments are stable enough to be willing to play that gamble. Yes, I know central banks are independent. That independence only goes so far. So you've got huge personal debt levels. And I just can't see governments being brave enough, or they might think foolish enough, to raise interest rates in a meaningful way. Certainly not at the same time as you're giving people extra money to pay their energy bill. It gets very messy and confusing. So yeah, they could do it, but I don't think they will. See, I'm much more a believer in central bank independence than clearly you are. In terms of government policies, this is actually a question that came up in the reserving seminar that I didn't get a chance to answer on the day. Firstly, central bank independence was a Tony Blair initiative and it survived Labour governments, Conservative governments, and Boris Johnson, of all people. Additionally, the 2% inflation target itself, it's been entrenched for so long. Sorry, two, yeah, 2% inflation target. It's been entrenched for so long that it's assumed to be a Bank of England policy, but really it's a government policy that was set by the Labour government and has also survived. So I think it's just one of those areas that politicians dare not tread. So in that sense, I, I don't have such concern about the bank taking action, what I'd be worried about is Boris Johnson's appetite to deal with the consequences. But I think, as you say, they are all very interconnected. It would be very counterintuitive for the government to be handing out, as you say, our money, and then conversely, interest rates going up and then taking them back in, in another form. So yeah, although I probably agree with that, that I do think there is a level of independence, you know, there has to be a holistic approach here. And I say I am quite surprised that interest rates haven't increased more yet. 
given the high levels of inflation. I want to bring a point you mentioned a bit earlier, Ed, about biases. So I've only ever really known a low inflation environment, and I've been wrangling quite a lot in recent months with some of the numbers that are coming out and how that actually, you know, almost finding it unbelievable that that's possible. And, you know, because I've just never had to experience that either personally or professionally. Do you think that's quite a risk that we are going to get anchored to what we've known? And as you say, you know, looking over the longer term, higher levels of inflation are, are very normal and should be expected. Now, that really is a topical question. Now, when we set out to do an inflation talk at the reserving seminar, we ran a poll and we got 90 respondents from across sort of reserving professionals in the industry. And we expected to do a 20 minute talk just kind of on the the results of that poll and the benchmarking that it was providing to the wider insurance industry. Now, Being an actuary, I tried to go and do a little bit of validation on that. And what we did was we asked people about CPI and their predictions of that. We asked people also about their predictions for four key insurance classes, motor damage, motor injury, casualty, and property. When I went and looked at the sort of implied excess inflation, so remember that that gap between background inflation and the class, what I found was that for many of those classes, the implied excess inflation in the poll was actually negative in the short term and was really only quite a small effect, just one or 2%, in fact, no more than one and a half percent in the long term. And so what that suggested to me was either there's some sort of force in the market that just compresses excess inflation as background CPI rises, and that's a possibility, or there's a sort of behavioral bias going on or a cognitive spanner getting in the works that's stopping people really understanding and getting to grips with a rational view of claims inflation. Uh, and we had this debate back and forth. There's, there's some arguments on both sides, but I, I think quite strongly I came down on the side of there being that cognitive spanner in the works as a big driver. Yeah, I mean, that reminds me of a conversation I recently had with a CRO of a large insurer. And the thing that they were talking about, the concern that they have in the current environment is that what they really want to do is show the board some pretty severe adverse scenarios, be it on inflation, climate change, etc. But what they're sensing is that if those scenarios are, are perceived as too adverse, then the presentation kind of loses credibility. And I think they are very rightly concerned about that because they're worried that as a result of the fact that the board, you know, potentially might laugh out of the room, somebody who's presenting a real nightmare inflation scenario, 25% per annum or whatever, it means the board's not going to get told those things. But actually, you don't look have, have to look that far back to see when these, these things have happened. You know, we have had 25 plus percent inflation. You know, I can remember my parents paying over 20% per annum interest on a mortgage at one point. Yeah, it didn't last forever, but these things can happen. Also, given what we've gone through in the last few years with COVID, it almost seems a bit of a really big risk now to not be properly considering, well, what if things do go a bit wrong? I don't know, I find that quite worrying that CRO wants to present a severe scenario, which, as you say, we've gone through something which probably no one was taking really seriously at the kind of more maybe unlikely end of the the spectrum in terms of the scenarios, but something that 
I think as a company, you need to have on your radar and understand if we end up there, what does it look like? Yeah, it almost sounds counterintuitive. I'd have actually thought that there would have been more openness to considering a range of maybe slightly more unlikely scenarios, but taking them a lot more seriously. Gosh, two really interesting points there. And I think they actually cover and touch on a whole range of those different emotional spanners. So, Charlotte, in your point about people not feeling comfortable raising ideas with the board or just in other committee meetings, I guess, there's an element of self-censoring there and also of conformity bias. And I guess just very plainly, that means that we do feel much more comfortable raising in a group setting ideas that we expect to be well received because that way it makes us good feel good we feel likely to be praised we think that our sort of promotion or developmental prospects are improved and conversely if we raise something that's perceived as silly then our judgment is called into question and perhaps we won't be given those opportunities in the future and that is a challenge across all business at all times but I think it's particularly important in the context of inflation now, where the, the status quo has kind of moved, or we moved on from the status quo. And actually, this, this idea about status quo is a, another bias or another spanner in the works. And it's just the idea that our decisions have inertia. And what I mean by that, or our behavior has inertia, I suppose, really. And what I mean by that is we do get very fixated on the status quo. It feels comfortable to think in a certain way, to address a problem in a certain way, or to take a certain course of action. And what that means is it takes a lot more evidence than it really should to move us off that sort of status quo and move us onto a new, more rational, more logical path. And I think we saw that come through very strongly in our survey results. So when we looked at people's predictions of CPI, which is a relatively simple index with lots of information out there, we saw that people's predictions lined up fairly well with current kind of Bank of England economic forecasts. We looked at claims inflation, which have loads more drivers in there. As I said, all the other factors, the pushes and the pulls that affect claims inflation. It's a much more complicated problem. I think there was a, a risk that people hadn't quite met the evidential threshold to move off that that status quo to overcome their decision-making inertia. And that's why we saw those expectations sit lower than they should have done and excess inflation look in some cases actually negative. Yeah, I think the inertia problem is is huge. It operates in both directions, but the inertia problem with slow recognition of good news probably has many benefits, whereas the slow recognition of bad news is basically a car crash in slow motion. And so I am concerned that we are going to see reserve deteriorations in various parts of the market over the coming years related to inflationary impacts that to an extent, if we could put away our cognitive biases, could have been recognized earlier. I think there's two sides to that, as with lots of things. Firstly, there is likely to be an inevitable round of reserve deteriorations come the autumn, where when people were doing their year-end reserving and SAO statements for Lloyd's, the Ukrainian conflict hadn't really got going yet. Inflation was a concern, but there were arguments that it could have been transitory. So one, people allowed for the sort of pre-Ukrainian inflationary environment, and that was logical and justifiable. And that deterioration is likely to have to work its way through now that we're in a, a different world. 
And then, as you say, there's the other part of it, which could have been dealt with back in November, which was the the inertia bias and the belief of it's probably just going to be a blip. I won't do anything. It'll go back to normal. And I won't look silly if I make a big fuss about it now and it goes away. So the, the overall impact is going to be big. But I, I think I have some sympathy with part of the deterioration, but not with the, the whole thing that's coming. I know that the last few months, inflation has been very interesting challenge, but also quite an annoying one in terms of trying to, you know, deal with it and managing managing it within reserving process. You know, we've had to make huge fundamental changes to kind of be really allowing for inflation properly. I guess, Ed, what, what would you advise to actuaries, risk professionals, management, you know, right now in terms of if they're trying to grapple with inflation, understand it in many different forms, what would be your kind of, you know, top tips? I think top tip number one would be we're all looking around frantically for some sort of silver bullet to slay the inflation demons that we've all found. I think technically silver bullets kill werewolves, but we'll gloss over that for the purposes (laughs) of the podcast. I think the thing for me is that we don't actually need that silver bullet. We've got a whole range of perfectly good weapons that we can use in the fight against inflation. At the moment, I think we're just in a position where we're a bit reticent to use them because of our own sort of preconceptions about what we need to do and those spanners that are getting in the way of logical decision making. So I've had a few conversations in the market about what a good inflation deep dive would look like effectively. And just to pick up on a few, but by no means all of the the things available there, I quite like this idea of inflation gap analysis. And we touched on that a bit earlier. That's the idea that you kind of make an assessment by one means or another of what you've got embedded in your data in the past in terms of inflation. And you can do that by unpicking the data itself using something like the separation method on a triangle of claims. Or you can do it by talking to the underwriters, understanding the drivers of inflation, and then looking at what a relevant index for bits of your portfolio has been doing over the the range of history that you've considered. And that gives you the past. And then you apply the same approach to the future and you say, where do I expect inflation to go? What's that gap between past and the future? And then from there, it's relatively straightforward to build in some sort of inflationary spike into your claims development, whether that be kind of a, a flat average inflation spike that runs over the whole of your claims development profile, or whether you build it in in a sort of more transient way where you have a big shock in the coming year's worth of cash flows, and then perhaps taper off back to a normal rate of inflation in the future. So that's how I've been encouraging people to look at it, is to get that past data, get to grips with that, build consensus in the business as to what the gap is, build that gap into your future projections, do some uncertainty analysis to illustrate that this is a new and much bigger than in the past source of uncertainty, and then present those options. And I think that's that's good in the sense that it also avoids the need to get into really, really technical modeling. I know the inflation-adjusted chain ladder is often quoted as being the something along the lines of the silver bullet. I think it is, but it still relies on those same assumptions that you have to understand what's going on in the past and what, what you expect to, to happen in the future. So you can do it using that method, or you can do it in a sort of more piecemeal way. But to come back to the original starting point, in my mind, 
doing nothing is now inexcusable and likely to land you in regulatory hot water. Doing something is the right answer. And it's just a case of quantifying what the something is now. So I think what you've set out there, Ed, is, is really good advice for an insurer looking to get a proper grasp on inflation, certainly in the area of reserving. One thing that we don't really have time to go into today, but I want to kind of highlight, and who knows, maybe we talk about this in a future podcast, is that I sense that inflation modeling methodology is less well developed in the capital modeling space than it is in reserving. And I think there, again, there's some interesting biases at play where there's a a risk that firms don't kind of think the unthinkable, don't model severe enough scenarios, and also potentially would struggle to model some of the knock-on effects of inflation. What if the inflation spike just turns into a higher normal inflation for several years? Another area, again, we haven't got time to go into detail, but earnings inflation. You know, there are reasons why employees might do a lot better in the arm wrestle between workforce and employer this year, both because of shortages in supply of certain certain types of workers and also just because of a more populist approach from governments, less likely to be tough on workers. So it'll be interesting to see where that takes us as well. I'm going to hold my tongue on speculating at how well firms have dealt with the various uncertainties coming down the track in their capital, because I know that at the moment we're working on the LCP annual Pillar 3 survey that looks at insurers' regulatory capital and their solvency returns. One of the things I'll be really keen to see when that comes out is whether all of the additional uncertainty that we expect to see in 2022, that we started seeing in 2021, whether that's translated into effectively a riskier one in 200 scenario and higher capital requirements for insurers. Because I'm a bit sceptical personally that our capital modelling philosophies are really risk responsive and that as the world changes, our capital requirements move alongside them. But as I say, watch this space and do read the Pillar 3 report when it comes out later this summer to find out more about that. Fantastic. So we have some new fun questions to end on, Ed. So let's see what you think of them. So firstly, what would your dream job be outside of financial services? So you can't work anywhere else in LCP or anywhere else in you know, the insurance market. What would your dream job be? That's a really easy one. I'm a really keen sailor. So I think my actual dream job would be to be a pro solo round the world racer. I can't say this too loudly because my wife and my six-month-old baby are in the background somewhere and she's probably frowning at me, (laughs) abandoning the baby and going off to voyage around the world. But that would definitely be my dream job. And that's actually quite topical because the next thing we wanted to ask you about is when you invite Jess and I around for dinner with you and the family and the new baby, what meal would you make for us? Again, that's a really good question. I did chemistry at uni, so the only way I get to play with chemicals anymore is kind of making food. It sounds much more dodgy than it is, but I I just treat cooking like chemistry. You know, I'm a really, really big Italian fan, so I'd probably make you a combination of some different pastas and maybe some homemade pizza as well. I mean, you can't beat a good pepperoni pizza, but also favourite pastas. I quite like kind of tagliatelle with green pesto, asparagus, broccoli, and, you know, veggie chicken pieces because my my wife is vegetarian. That sounds right up my street. 
I believe there's a massive oversupply of asparagus in the country at the moment. So maybe you could be doing your bit to sort of <laughs> do something helpful with that supply. There we go. It's it's healthy and it's inflation busting all at the same time. What what could be better in the current environment? <laughs> Thank you so much, Ed. That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode. This podcast is brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra, Megan Frost and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.